This podcast is sponsored by CFA Institute, the global association of investment professionals whose mission is to lead the investment profession by promoting the highest standards of ethics, education, and professional excellence for the ultimate benefit of society. CFA Institute serves a global community of investment professionals working to build an investment industry where investors' interests come first, financial markets function at their best, and economies grow. The Chartered Financial Analyst Credential is the most respected and recognized investment management designation in the world. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CFA Institute. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and this is Invest Like the Best. This show is an open-ended exploration of markets, ideas, methods, stories, and of strategies that will help you better invest both your time and your money. You can learn more and stay up to date at InvestorFieldGuide.com. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is the CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This week's episode covers a new set of topics. The conversation with Neil Robertson covers media, esports, content distribution, marketing, and a lot more. Neil started the software company out of his bedroom when he was 14 years old and sold his first company in 1999 for $280 million when he was just 24. He has started and sold other companies to Twitter and Cisco. He started another large business that ultimately failed. He's been an investor, venture partner, and serial entrepreneur. You can find more about Neil's background in the show notes. As I often do, I cut the long background section from the interview so that we can get right to the meat of things. But Neil concluded that section saying, I think it could all be summed up by saying, I just like building things and I can't stop doing it. In addition to the overall media landscape, we discuss the role that the biggest media platforms will play and where other opportunities may exist. We cover digital collectibles stored on the blockchain and what type of digital assets may be leased out to others. We close with a discussion of leadership, company structure, content creation, and something you should do each year. Please enjoy this unique conversation with Neil Robertson. So there's in our, when we first met and, and in our thinking and emailing back and forth about this conversation, there are so many different avenues that we could go down and talk about. So I'll do my best to return to a few common themes. And those might be the state of media content, the role you already mentioned of influencers, this idea of marketplaces and technology and content and how these all fit together. We could talk about things like esports and digital collectibles. And I think all of these threads can be tied back to some core concepts. So maybe you could begin by giving your assessment of the landscape along those major themes as you see it today, maybe specifically with media and content as like the big thing overarching all of this. And then we'll, we'll go down these individual paths. Absolutely. So I got sort of sucked into thinking heavily about this problem, problem space, because my business partner and I jumped into the influencer marketing game. And, and for those that are not familiar with influencer marketing, they've, they've witnessed it even if they don't understand the underlying industry. Generally speaking, it's finding anybody that has an audience, whether it's this podcast or a model on Instagram or, or anything in between. You know, now people on Twitch, for example, playing games. Anybody that aggregates an audience and leveraging that aggregation of an audience to help promote something, usually products. That's kind of as, as complex and simple as it is. When we started in the industry, it was very much focused on, on retail. So there had been a number of really insightful people that had built 
really big businesses out of nowhere by taking advantage of this new channel. So one of the early players, for example, an Australian company called Frank's Body Scrub was someone who was a barista in a coffee shop and people kept coming in and asking for the coffee grounds. They said, why are you putting them on their plants? And they said, no, we actually put them in our face cream and there's something about the caffeination of the coffee grounds that is really wonderful. So they looked into this and decided it was a great product category and they built this campaign where essentially they got early on Australian models who essentially rub coffee grounds on their face, post it on Instagram and say, like, this is the new, new thing. That company completely leveraged the most intuitive and best parts of influencer marketing, which wasn't even a thing when they started and built something like a 30 or $40 million business over three years. And this has now gone on to develop a whole bunch of other products and is pretty big. And there was a bunch of other people that, that really kind of jumped in early on to do that. So what's happened though, is that influencers have, have gone from being, really a marketing channel of someone that is really just a way to sort of display a targeted ad, which happens to be in a picture on their Instagram feed, to being much more sort of respected and looked at as content creators. So as media companies are all jostling around trying to figure out what the future looks like, and as traditional media companies, the Viacoms and AT&Ts of the world are, are starting to look at what the landscape is looking like in the next 10 years, they're realizing like platforms like Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and everything else are actually much more direct competitors than I think perhaps they had realized before. And at the core of all the strategies of this business is actually creator-led content or influencer-led content. I think maybe about six or seven years ago, Zuckerberg woke up and said, this generation is about mobile. Everything has to be mobile. And I remember them making that big shift in the first mobile app coming out, and it was really horrible and slow, and they sort of took a while to get it right. All those companies have essentially declared that the future of media is essentially influencer creator-led media. It's the media that you start consuming in relation to a person that you admire, as opposed to a necessarily a TV show that you just randomly find on Netflix and start binging. And so the industry has gone from one that's on the hunt for the most effective person to put your product into their feed to one that really is valuing these influencers and creators as kind of core to the future of media companies. And Instagram's launch of Instagram TV and the commentary they made around it essentially just validated that 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 is the strategy that Facebook believes is the future. And so you've now got a whole bunch of multi-billion dollar platform companies that are really media companies gearing up to try to figure out how to build relationships with these influencers and creators because creators are not going to have a relationship with six different platforms. They're not going to put content on six different platforms. But someone who's 12 will probably wake up in two or three years, walk into the living room, flip on their Roku TV and see Instagram TV on there. And that's the content they'll consume as opposed to going to HBO or, or Netflix as their first point of entry. I'm always interested by how these big changes, and you feel it everywhere. There does seem to be more of an emphasis on individuals versus companies, and the people be, have become the brands is kind of a big trend. Thinking about it as a, as a builder and an investor and business person, what's that angle? So what becomes most attractive? This sounds like you got the most you know, well-financed, fast-moving companies in the world competing to build the most attractive platform for these people seems like a scary space to be as an investor or a business person. So how do you think about that angle? I mean, the thing that I love about what's happening is things that were essentially the purview of large corporations go back as far as you want to newspapers and conglomerates and, and Hearst and contemporary, you know, NBCs and ABCs. One individual person can build something more valuable than they can from a media perspective. I think that's an incredible disruption on a global scale. I remember early on in the days of Snapchat, there was a, um, a channel on Snapchat called Arsenic TV, and it was pretty, pretty R-rated, not safe for work stuff. But 
they had a lot of attention. And I remember the day that they posted that they had more active viewers than MTV did that day. And it was, that was like six years ago. And that was like a moment for me where I realized there's gonna be a lot of people that are going to wake up and have a, have a pretty hard day in the next five or 10 years. So where to sit in that landscape? Well, a lot of the players that entered the space and tried to build businesses around this early on really took the methodology that we tried in my last business, which was to create a two-sided marketplace and essentially look for the money flowing between both people. Brands are paying influencers to post about their products and look for a way to take advantage of the growth of that money as a general industry. And so they set up a two-sided marketplace. On one side, they recruited brands. On the other side, they found influencers and creators, and they essentially executed campaigns in the middle, and they take a percentage of that spend. There was probably 20 or 30 companies that jumped into that space on a global basis, probably 50 or 60 in the first five years. And it's it's not, an, not a bad thing. It's just it's very hard to scale that business at the end of the day because when you actually run the campaign, it means when, it, when you get into the subjectivity trap, people call you. And when people call you and debate subjective outcomes, you end up having a lot of staff. And you end up regressing to being agency. So my business partner and I looked at the industry and said, that's not what we want to be. I've got some scars from my last business doing that. And um, my business partner, Jeff, has come from a world of building SEO businesses where you try to take advantage of content and searchability of things. And it dawned on us that influencers was an incredibly searchable space. It's all these millennials looking up all their favorite influencers and typing that into Google and typing in different things that they're doing. And that by definition, it's a very content-centric space. These influencers are creating content. That's a sort of a gift from an SEO perspective to find a brand new landscape that's expanding geometrically or exponentially that has both searchability and content at its core. And the business that you build on top of that historically has always been a community. And community is kind of a a funny word. You have to squint at it a little bit. But LinkedIn, at the end of the day, is a community. It is a community of business professionals. It just happens to be every business professional. But if you think of my kind of two dimensions, searchability, you know, when I met you or when I was introduced to you, the first thing I did was type in your name, LinkedIn, and look through your history, right? That's how I get to know you and find commonality. But also, you create a lot of content. And so your resume is content, but you also might... Um, publish this podcast, you know, to your audience on LinkedIn or in other places. So the community around business professionals is a perfect fit. For my example, if you look at other professions, there's almost one major website for every single important profession. So uh, Stack Overflow is a huge, probably multi-billion dollar valued company. There's about 50 million developers on it. And developers discuss code and ask each other, each other questions. That's the content of developers. Dribble and Behance are for graphic designers, and they ha- each have about 10 million members in the community. And those members show off all of the photography and artwork and design they're doing. We're all very familiar with IMDb. Um, you know, we search on movie stars all the time. And what movies were they in? And, oh, you know, where's that shoot taking place with that beautiful building in the background? And they're producing a lot of content as well. IMDb has 350 million page views a month. It's actually owned by Amazon. And so House, which is another multi-billion dollar company, yep, is a community one. for designers. And guess what? You search on things about your home design and designers like to show off the designs that they've done. And it's actually a very content-centric community. So the actual original inspiration of a community that I thought of first was this company called Model Mayhem, which 10 years ago helped models who have a lot of content, their portfolios, put them online and disintermediate their agencies. And guess what? You know, a lot of guys and, and gals are searching on these models to try to find these pictures. It's not always business business related, but it creates a massive landscape for SEO. And before Instagram existed, Model Mayhem had about three or 400 million page views a month as well and ended up selling that business, I, th- I think, to internet brands. So 
Jeff and I said that that's the model, no pun intended, is to to build a community. And so two years ago, we set off to do that, to, to build a company called Influence.co, really in the, in the shape of a LinkedIn or a Stack Overflow, where we studiously avoided being in the middle. We always wanted to just be the matchmaker to acquire information and turn it into something SEOable, and thus be able to build a very large scalable business that cost very little to grow because of the SEO value. And that's where we're at now. It's it's really, really fun to, I, I'm probably overly obsessed every day by looking at the growth numbers, um, but it's great. The idea of just like, I love talking about just generic business models and helping people think about their own business and, and ways of improving it. Since you've started, run, invested in, kind of viewed from afar, all sorts of different businesses, this is a neat opportunity to really talk about the present state of the art and future of distribution of products. Obviously, influencers is, is one way of doing that. But I wonder if, if there are other large changes that you've seen, maybe just across your own career, as you're trying to sell products yourself in the way that that is done. It's something I, I think a lot about as well. And maybe it's community building. Maybe that's the best thing you can do as generic advice for somebody out there is, is however small it is, just build your own tribe or community. Are there other kind of state-of-the-art things that you would encourage people to think about when it comes to, and I know this is probably massively different for like a B2B versus a B2C sales, but maybe we could cover both. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it really does sort of depend categorically. So one of the other businesses that I helped build with another fraternity brother of mine at MIT is a business called Viglink. And, and Viglink is the largest, really kind of, we call it a meta affiliate. So a lot of people don't actually know much about the affiliate world, but it's fascinating and it's billions of dollars. If you're reading a blog and the blog, say it's a mommy blog and the blog mentions a stroller and that stroller links to Amazon, you might perceive that as just utility, but deeply buried into that URL is a code that allows the blogger to make money if you click on that link and then buy something. What's interesting is you don't have to buy the stroller to make money. You can buy anything. And so embedded in that URL or that, or that cookie is essentially a time window that says whatever you buy in this time window on Amazon, you get paid 4 to 8% of. But what's interesting is if you then go read another mommy blogger's blog and click on another link that sends you to Amazon, the attribution goes to that person. So there's a whole affiliate sort of attribution last in war that goes on. But this is a huge part of how Amazon built their business early on. They, they pioneered the concept of taking traditional word of mouth referrals and putting them online. It is a very, very effective way to grow some types of channels. Blogging has essentially, that, that really is kind of the birth of, of influencers at the end of the day, is, is finding people that have aggregated audience and then talk about products and, and push people towards those. It's great because it's very traceable, but as things moved to being a much more visual medium on Instagram, people just took the simpler way of having someone put up a picture of the product and, and off you go. I think when it comes to B2B, it's really tricky to find an angle. There's always something new. So SEO was was very big for a while. Content marketing or inbound marketing was very big for a while. But people tend to, f- to flood it out extremely quickly these days. So I think there's... Uh, interesting things that you can do with like co-registration with partners. So, you know, once you've signed up for a, a, a free trial with someone, they recommend you to sign up for free trials. Other things, there's distribution channels like AppSumo that let you sort of pre-sell bundles of stuff to try to get like scale in your marketplace. I think though that to be honest, in the B2B space, like we're kind of tapped out of anything new and interesting. I think there's a bit of a squeezing blood from the stone happening 
for those kinds of companies these days. Because B2B stuff doesn't work really well with influencers. It's much more of a commercial product. But there will be a lull and then something new will arrive. So, I mean, I, I wish I could have give you some divine insight, but I actually think perhaps one of the insights from an investment perspective is that it's really, really hard to build unit economics in a B2B software company now, which is what completely drives the whole B2B scale and investment side of the house because there aren't new creative things that are emerging. People are actually- On the product side or on the distribution side? On the distribution side. People are actually going back to things like hiring 150, 23 year olds and sticking them in an office and, and having them call people. I mean, it's, I did that you know 10 years ago when I built my business and I thought everybody had kind of gotten away from that. And that's pretty much what people are doing now. It's really amazing. Or doing huge amounts of scraping on LinkedIn, right? There's just rooms full of people in the Philippines that for $4 an hour just go through and scrape information off of LinkedIn and try to compile lists for you. Um, it's And those lists are primarily for phone lists. It gets really interesting, too, depending on how aggressive the authorities are about GDPR, because those traditional you scrape and put stuff into marketing drips break a lot of the GDPR regulations. I, I, I think it's going to get harder before it gets easier, probably in the next five years, for those kinds of companies to scale really quickly out of the gates. The next topic I'd like to cover is back to media. I want to talk about some of the very recent events that we've been emailing back and forth about. But before we do that, I would love to spend some time on esports. So this is something that I've been asked to discuss on the podcast quite a bit, and I, we never have. So an overview of that ecosystem would be interesting from your perspective, both in terms of just what's happening, but also the maybe the potential investment opportunities yeah. that exist in that world, because it's a great example of new kind of content, audience building, you know, all, all of these things. Yeah, I mean, I think the challenging thing about giving an overview of, of esports is that it's sort of becoming everything at once. It's changing how people think about building facilities and, and where they think about building facilities. It's changing, you know, my, my friends in Australia are very tied to a casino that's in Melbourne, and they have a huge amount of esports events in the casino that, you know, drive a lot of business there. And that's not something, I mean, I guess you can say esports is related to sports betting and that makes sense for a casino, but it's, that's not what it's about. It's, it's really about what the event space in the casino is being used for. Merchandise, ticketing, I mean, of course, with all the sports betting changes in the United States. And then now, not to make everything about influencers and creators, but like the audience builders on Twitch are, are unbelievable. Pop culture is essentially moving into games, which is fascinating. Can you so, say a little bit more about that? Just because... I'm just using myself as an example. I'm 33 and I have totally missed this. I've never watched a game. You know, like I, I, I don't even know what the games are. I don't know if it's like Madden or, or if it's some sort of other game. So even some of the very basics about kind of what's happening would, would be interesting. The game industry is, is shifting around a lot as well because I think people are trying to build games that are as interesting for viewers as they are for players, which, is a, which yeah. is a really interesting thing, right? I mean, you and I probably maybe grew up with, with an Xbox or you exactly, know, yeah. PlayStation or whatever and played, you know, Grand Theft Auto until our fingers bled. But, you know, someone maybe came in for a minute, watched and left. So creating games that are, are as interesting to view as they are to play is like a whole new category. I think the most, the one that we're talking about now is Fortnite, which kind of came out on, on YouTube and Twitch and just dominated everything. And that was the one that Drake was playing with, with Ninja, one of the, one of the Twitch stars and ended up getting something like 608,000, you know, concurrent views, which is more than a lot of professional sports will get for a single game. But that game is actually a, like a battle royale game. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Battle Royale. Yeah, sure. So I mean, you basically are dropped onto an island that has sort of diminishing amount of space to run around, and you you basically pick up weapons and, and you build structures to essentially knock everybody Try off. To kill everyone. Else. <laughs> yeah, um, it's exciting. There was like a million people that watched that happen. 
So that's like all of a sudden, you know, in the middle of the football game, they decide to take all the laces out of the football and, you know, cut the football into pieces and create a new game of pogs out of the football leather and just play that for an hour, right? It's like nothing to do with the game, but that just doesn't happen in traditional structured sports games. And so I think that that complete and utter experimentation of what the actual game is inside of the game itself is just going to lend itself to a different type of engagement. So I don't know. I, I thought it was fascinating. In this world, this is a, I've heard that name Ninja before. So he must be the number one guy or something. Clearly an example of an influencer. Do you think that the value in this kind of value chain will indeed accrue more to these people themselves versus the companies that are just really good, like a Facebook, you know, you sent me this article about Facebook creating basically tools, all these companies creating tools for content creators, trying to extract back to your first message, the best stuff onto their platform and take it away from the, you know, traditional media companies. I'm always skeptical that the future is going to be much different than the past. And so I'm curious how much you think it's appealing to be an influencer versus to be a platform. Yeah. Which one to be? I mean, my friend Ryan, who, who I work with technically on all of our projects, we always have this phrase, just everything is hard. Nothing's a layup. So a bunch of different comments. One is, I think the battle that's happening between the platforms right now is really around who can create a relationship with an influencer or creator by giving them the most ways to monetize themselves. Anytime you're an individual, building a business and monetizing is hard, no matter what you're doing. If you're a musician or you're you know, a digital marketer that's doing consulting or you're someone that's creating content to an audience. And so they're trying to sort of win over these, these friendships by looking at all the different ways you can make money. And what's happening is that there's actually a lot of different ways that you can make money now as an influencer. This is another big change that happened. So in the early days, you could basically go onto YouTube, try to build a big audience on YouTube and monetize your YouTube shows with ads. The CPM rates dropped dramatically on YouTube, which sort of sent everybody into a fur. And that was right around the time that sponsored content was actually um, rising. So people started to be able to charge a lot of money to do sponsored content and maybe like, create a video about how to use a piece of software, whatever the case may be. And those numbers went up. Because there's a lot of supply now in that space because everybody sort of flooded in and said they were an influencer, those numbers are flattening off as well. So what people are really starting to do, and this was led by a company called Patreon, is start to do direct monetization with their audiences. That means I'm going to hold back some of my content for the, my audience that wants to spend $4 a month with me. And Patreon is a company that was funded, has about $100 billion that kind of led the charge in helping influencers and creators essentially just collect money from their audiences. And, and a lot of it are podcasters, a lot of it are, are YouTubers, but it's spilling into other things like um, traditional players. What's been really interesting about what Facebook has done recently is that they have essentially said, we're going to try to help you with every part of your wallet. So you can make ads because of the videos you're producing through Facebook Watch. We're going to try to find brand deals for you to help you make money as a creator. And we're also, they announced that they're providing direct monetization tools and direct competition with Patreon as well. YouTube has come back and said, okay, we need to help you monetize better. They actually had paid subscriptions about two years ago. They took them off except for gaming so they could compete with Twitch. And now they've reintroduced them again. So all these people are kind of scrambling to try to help people make as much money as possible. And then you've got Amazon over here that owns Twitch, which is like one of the greatest secrets of Amazon's portfolio, who has been helping people like Ninja have subscription channels and do in, in-game monetization. So, you know, whatever, when you kill the big boss, someone sends you, they're called cheers on Twitch. Someone sends you, you know, $5 worth of cheers. And that's, you can end up making a ton of that money. So, and a lot of that stuff comes from a lot of the live video 
platforms. I mean, both like the very safe for work live video platforms and the not safe for work live video platforms. Like a lot of the webcam girl stuff is all about in-game gifting and things like that, as well as companies like YouNow and, and YY out of China that are can sit there and talk to people and, and give them money. So the platform companies are scrambling to try to create these relationships and try to create these monetization strategies for them. Is it better to be an influencer or a platform? I think the challenge of an influencer is just how do you scale yourself? How do you not have to be streaming for 80 hours a week on Twitch to make ends meet? Because I think what people are very wary of is that early, early YouTubers started to make money, but the CPM rates dropped so much that you could be essentially making videos with millions of views and making two or $3,000 a month, barely enough to survive as a YouTuber. So I think it's going to take a major shift for people to be able to directly monetize with their audiences and for those audiences to learn what kind of content they want to consume in a way that they'd be willing to pay for it. And then I think whoever, once that kind of formula is figured out, and it's happening, it'll probably take another few years. I think whoever has the best distribution to audiences that are willing to pay, back to distribution again, because I'm not so sure that your audience on Instagram, if you're, you know, whatever an Instagram model, your audience on Instagram is the one that's going to pay you $2.99 a month. It's more likely that if you've created a Facebook group and you have a highly engaged audience there, they're going to be able to, to turn into money. Or maybe it works really well on Twitch because people are just sitting there watching you all the time. One of the most monetizable categories is actually podcasting. Because as a friend of mine who's in the space said, like, you're getting someone to listen to you for 30 minutes or an hour. They're already pretty heavily engaged. They're probably likely going to end up paying you $2.99 or $4.99 for specialized content. I think the thing that is the long-term strategy here is both for platforms to be able to sort of win the future of kind of eyeballs by having the creators on their platform that are essentially creating content. But also one of the biggest problems for brands is they can't spend enough money with influencers and creators. This is actually one of the biggest issues with the industry right now. You can spend $5,000, you can spend $100,000, but it's very hard to spend a million dollars on an influencer marketing campaign right now. This is exactly the same problem that happened in the SEO industry when it started. It was really hard to spend more than $5,000 a month on SEO. Now the industry is $80 billion a year and people have multi-million dollar budgets, but it's very hard for a lot of the early companies to get scale and to get off the ground because there just wasn't enough money flowing around. This is a prediction. I think that what people are trying to do is trying to become the platform where people essentially monetize all those eyeballs so that they can then go back to the brands and say, look, there is 100,000 people paying on this channel. This is a million-dollar sponsorship opportunity. Let us and, do it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And what will happen is we'll go from – here's $1,000 to put up a picture of my product on your Instagram feed to just like Google sponsors your Wi-Fi at Starbucks, Maybelline will sponsor fashion influencers channel and every single person paying $2.99 a month, 50,000 people, that's $150,000 a month. They're just going to pay for that for everybody. The influencer gets the money. The brand gets a native advertising sponsor at scale. The participants are happy because they don't have to pay that money anymore. And you're going to start seeing more and more of these opportunities for brands to come in and have a way to spend a lot of money in a non-invasive way. It's nothing different than the Yahoo homepage takeover of old. So that's a jumble of things. But what I think really matters is, is distribution. And I think the absolute sleeper in this game is Amazon. I think they are actually going to be the player that wins. Because they're sitting there with Twitch, and they're, they have an incredible business, and they're learning. They're like, I think Bezos is like the, the internet crocodile, right? <laughs> he, like, he just sort of watches they get really good at their own thing and then they figure out how to give their own thing to everybody and build a multi-billion dollar business out of it, right? So they're going to get really good at 
Twitch and streaming and communities and monetization. And then they go, well, cool. Like you don't have to do live. You can just put up videos here too. And then all of a sudden they've got a billion people watching Twitch videos every single day. It's very easy to then extend. Is that the number? Uh, no, I'm saying at some point oh, in time, okay. there'll be, I mean, I, Jesus Christ, it, but it's, I mean, it's in the hundreds of millions already. It's massive. People will look back just like people look back at the 1 billion purchase of Instagram and thought, wow, that was cheap as hell or the 3.2 billion, 1.6 billion for YouTube, which seems like a steal. People are going to look back at the 900 that was paid for Twitch and think it was the cheapest thing yes. they ever did. So they're just going to sit there, lurk in the water and all of a sudden look at everything else in the Amazon ecosystem. You got a hundred million prime members that have access to prime channels. So you have a, long-form content distribution network that is already sitting in people's homes. You have an Amazon influencers program, which we work on with Amazon, where they actually allow influencers to build storefronts of all of the products they talk about on their various channels. Because it's actually, if you go on someone's Instagram and you see like, here's a dress I really love, you can't buy it off of Instagram. You have to go hunting for it and you'll find it on Amazon. So now they just say, hey, here's the product to talk about. And you can drop that in the bottom of a YouTube video or you can put that in your Instagram link or whatever the case may be. So they have thousands of those things. And so they have native commerce integration, which no other platform has. And if you kind of sew all these bits and pieces together, if they add kind of one piece, which is a place to aggregate your community and manage them, which is a little bit of what's happening kind of around their, their Twitch experimentation. But they also have one thing that no one else has, which is they have a neutral to positive opinion by most influencers and creators. A lot of the other platforms have done things with demonetization or, you know, they're viewed as, you know, platforms for older people, not younger people, or, you know, have come and gone. And Amazon, pretty much everybody's like, yeah, I like Amazon. That's actually one of their greatest strengths. And so I think they're going to kind of just slowly put all these pieces together, kind of let the rest of the world battle it out right now, and then introduce a way for influencers and creators to essentially monetize three or four different ways. Given how much a smallest of these stocks, the names we've mentioned all of already, dominate discourse on investing and have, have really led market returns, it would be fun to just to do a quick sort of like overrated, underrated on some of the other platforms just to hear your thoughts because the thoughts on Amazon are so interesting. So maybe we'll start with something like Snapchat. In my view, Snapchat is in a moment where they could make a couple moves and leapfrog some of the other people that have just legacy stuff that they've got to deal with. I think that window is relatively short. I think there's probably six months for them to to make a few moves before they start to just sort of Twitter themselves into um, steady state platform that never gets any bigger, probably never any smaller. They did launch something recently, which was called SnapKit, which was the ability to actually authenticate using Snapchat. And that doesn't seem like a big thing, but it really is because it gets a lot of developers to build apps on their platform. And it was one of the hardest things before is that you could you could never pull statistics from Snap. You could never really integrate it into your app. On our platform, Influence.co, people come in and they authenticate all their platforms, and you can't authenticate Snapchat. So someone could tell us they have 100 million followers or zero followers, and we just don't know that. So they're putting some basic infrastructure in place, and I think they're really thinking about this. But I think that window is that window is small for them to make some pretty serious moves. How about Twitter? Oh, Twitter. As much as I love Twitter because they, they bought one of our favorite, companies. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who, who runs strategy at Edelman, and he made a really, really smart comment about Facebook, which which was also a comment about Twitter in the process. He said, Facebook's genius is they basically haven't changed anything for six years. That's actually pretty true. If you think of it, the newsfeed is basically the same. They built a lot of like stuff, you know, a lot of neighborhoods around the city, you know, for marketplaces and Facebook.gg and all this kind of stuff, but they just kind of haven't screwed with the base. Because people don't like relearning new stuff. 
I think Snapchat is kind of suffering from this problem of trying to get people to relearn. And Twitter, I think, is in this really tricky thing where they're trying to get a whole bunch of people to relearn because the core is really hard for a very broad audience. So I'm I'm not huge on on Twitter's future. I think they place a big bet on live. And I think out of a few categories like gaming, I personally think that live has never produced significant returns. I mean, I think that Instagram is backing off of live. I think Facebook is backing off of live and going more into just traditional long form content, eat it when you want. So no, not a huge Twitter fan. Is there, so we've talked about kind of Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, any other major interesting platform that you think is important in this landscape? And I want to talk about how all of this that we've talked about impacts the incumbent media companies too. Anybody that we care about. Twitch is fascinating. Twitch is, I mean, Really, Amazon is fascinating, right? Every time I, I have to stop myself and, remi- and all the time remind myself that Amazon is Twitch and Twitch is Amazon and Amazon is, they're just smart. And because I think what's happening with Twitch is they're getting incredible scale so they can back into things that other people can't do. I am really interested to see what Pinterest does. They're this funny little comp, funny little company. They're this funny in the broad scheme of things, but they have like $450 million of revenue. They're, I think, almost profitable. They're about to go public, I think. And they have 250 million users that's growing. They just keep chugging along. And they, I don't view them as in any any kind of trouble at all. I think the opportunity is all upside for them. And I think they could make a couple moves and do things like much more native commerce integration a la Amazon. They could do a lot more stuff with video content. They, they're, the creators are on that platform, really like that platform. They're very content-centric. It's in their nature. They're a funny beast that if you sort of like look at all the checkboxes of what kind of the future of media is, they check a lot of those boxes. They just haven't organized them into, into an assault on anything yet. Yeah, I think if, if uh, Pinterest goes public, I'd buy some of that stock. So we, we're almost an hour in and we haven't gotten to blockchain Sorry. yet. Sorry. No, no, no. This is awesome. <laughs> I'd love to go to blockchain and talk about your, I think, relatively nascent interest in that world. We talked quite a bit when we first met about digital collectibles, which is the first concept in crypto that has me sort of really interested and excited, frankly, probably since just Bitcoin. So tell us a little bit about your your interest there, what you're doing Maybe discuss a little bit why digital collectibles are, are interesting and where that might be headed. I was one of these people that sort of watched crypto and just sort of let it do its thing. More fascinated by the headlines and actually more fascinated by the incredible amount of ingenuity that's gone into some of the hacks that have happened. And then I stumbled across the, the digital collectible side of the world. And I, and I, and I kind of got into it because of all the fervor over CryptoKitties. And you know, for those that don't know, you know essentially... While Bitcoin is a distributed ledger that keeps track of you know how much Bitcoin everybody has, the fact that you have one Bitcoin versus another Bitcoin is irrelevant. It's like you having a, a physical dollar bill versus another f- physical dollar bill. They're completely exchangeable. But digital collectibles is essentially a standard on top of Ethereum, the ERC-721 standard, that allows for a distributed knowledge of ownership of a unique item. And that doesn't mean that you can't have the same unique item in the same way that you might have a seven prints of an Ansel Adams photograph. You know, there's not only one of them, but you know that you have one of seven. That's fine. But it sort of tries to translate the concept of, of uniqueness and authenticity onto the, onto the blockchain. I think that's a really interesting side of the world because I think, to me, it translates into a lot more things that a lot more just human generalist human beings feel comfortable with. I think the biggest problem with blockchain is the early entrants are 
kind of really wed to a lot of the philosophical underpinnings, anonymity, com- complete and utter decentralization, sort of these sort of like extremist parts of the landscape, um, which I think is partially why it's been successful. But in general, that's not how most people work. They want to know about things. They want to not have anonymity. I mean, I think Twitter's biggest problem is that it's highly anonymous. And so it just encourages a huge amount of bad behavior. And so the collectible side of things is kind of a step towards that where you're starting to associate ownership with individuals. I think if you abstract the concept of unique ownership from things like a digital collectible, like owning a crypto kitty or owning a digital piece of artwork or something like that, into things like owning a movie ticket or owning something that allows you to play Fortnite with um, with Ninja. And like that's the thing that you own and it can be tradable and movable and it's completely digital. That gets really fascinating to me. It becomes, it becomes highly disruptive to a lot of traditional industries that have digital equivalents but have central authorities that essentially you know are in control of those digital equivalents are there a couple other examples that this area will thrive with examples the one of the scarce ability to play with ninja is a perfect example what are some other things that might be threatening or disruptive to existing players well i mean i think there's a lot of there's a lot of people that are experimenting with games on this related to the gaming industry i think it's really fascinating so, for example, a lot of games, not Fortnite games, have the concept of, of finding and earning things, finding coins, finding weapons, things like that. Well, if those are now exportable and tradable, back to distribution, it creates a lot more value in those things. So I think if you take the concept of digital collectibles and you add one more thing, which is the ability to lease a digital collectible to someone, the amount of space that you can cover with ideas gets very big very fast. So. To use a gaming example again, and there's a lot of other real-world examples, imagine if I worked really hard in World of Warcraft to gain some item in the game, which is really... Some hammer. Some <laughs> hammer, right? Yeah, sort of smoting or something like that, right? That helps you get through some challenging part of the game. I don't necessarily want to go and sell it because I earned that thing. I want that thing. But I might lease it to you for three months so you can go on your own adventure and try to get, get through whatever part of the game you want to get through with that. And to have a kind of a decentralized authority that handles a lot of that stuff is really interesting. So I think... It's the ability to have authentic ownership of something that leads to things like the leasing of that authentic ownership that gets super fascinating. Why do you think it matters for it to be decentralized or, or to be on a blockchain versus just World of Warcraft has its own market and you can you can buy and lease and whatever? I think a lot of this comes back to the underlying infrastructure of blockchain being transparent. I mean, I think the the thing that's such a funny dichotomy in crypto to me is anonymity plus complete transparency. That seems like you couldn't put together a coherent sentence that way. And I think that what happens is because there's complete transparency, you essentially have a built-in information API to anything that gets built on it. So to my knowledge, I can't go and pull information on every World of Warcraft object and who bought it and who sold it and how for how much and when it was last bought and sold and if something just got found. But I can go look into the blockchain and see that in Ethereum. And so what I think is really fascinating in the, in the digital collectibles world like CryptoKitties is a lot of the players are not front-end players. They're back-end players. They're people that are literally looking through the blockchain for opportunities, like a trader would look through stocks or write things algorithmically, and are actually executing things directly at the blockchain level, sort of kind of a headless player, if you will. And that's where a lot of the money is being made. It's a lot of where the transactions are happening. And so I just think you can basically build something new on that and you instantly inherit all of the people that are already playing. It's sort of like saying, I don't need the NASDAQ 
right? I mean, getting around securities regulations, if I wanted to find a way to issue ownership in a company, I could do it. But you want all of the participants in the market there and a set of rules and regulations and a set of technology they built around it to be able to apply to whatever new thing you put onto the market. It's, I just think there's a lot of value in that. Talk a bit about beyond just digital collectibles, just the tokenization of other stuff and maybe the relationship between tokens, cryptocurrencies, whatever, and the real world. For example, I've heard this example a lot, which is, let's say Apple's shares were somehow tokenized on the blockchain and there were sort of things that were unlocked. If you held the shares for a year, you know, you could buy your next iPhone for 5% off or 10% off or something. Just more kind of space in which to do interesting new things. How do you think about that, the tokenization of other things as a useful idea? We talk a lot about the idea of security tokens in a business like Influence.co, any kind of a business that's a community. I think it's sort of sad that the first million people that joined LinkedIn and probably created critical mass in that business that you know was sold for, what, $24 billion, something like that, didn't get anything. They maybe didn't even get a job, right? <laughs> um, they, they got to say that I was you know LinkedIn number 372 or something, and that might be enough for most people. But there's a lot of people that are essentially creating value for you. It's way too impossible to deal with traditional stocks and options for that level of people. But tokenization, security tokenization, is a really interesting way to solve that problem. So, for example, you could take 10% of the common shares of a a business that was a community and essentially issue securitized tokens to the first 500,000 people in that community. We would make those tokens tradable, but also... At sale time, there would be enough distribution to those people. And it's a, it's a really simple mechanism for doing that. What's interesting about it is, can you dig into it? One of the biggest problems is essentially you know, giving people compensatory income. So in the startup world, we give people options. So you can actually build, though, into the token the concept of activity in the same way that you could give someone advisor shares in a business. And as long as they keep doing something for the business, they can keep their options. They never have to essentially pay for them until they have a liquidity event and they can just sort of pay the difference. You can do the exact same thing from a technical perspective in a community. So as long as you show up to the community once a month, you essentially retain your token that you earned and you don't have to pay tax on it until there's actually a liquidity event. And so that's really interesting to be able to do that at scale. And to tie just sort of like basic participation in things into ongoing ownership of something that's that's tied to a real class of stock. We've talked about a lot of exciting stuff. I want to spend a minute on maybe the downside of this by asking which company or companies out there that people will be familiar with have the hardest road ahead. So maybe a fun way to ask the question is, let's say you had to build a, a five-year short portfolio. You don't have to worry about the volatility between now and then or something like this. Based on all of these observations and kind of what the changes that you're perceiving in, in the media world, who's in the most trouble? So this is a roundabout way of answering it, but maybe it'll lead people that understand the players better than I do to some conclusions. When I was in Melbourne last, so I spent about a th- three months of the year in Australia, and I go between Melbourne and Sydney. I realized that about 90% of the services or sort of the things that I need are, were provided to me by American companies and not by anything in Australia. So I stayed in an Airbnb. I plugged in my Netflix onto the television. So I've got entertainment. We ordered Uber Eats. We get all of our transportation from Uber. All of my phone is, was Travel Pass by Verizon. 
So there's no, I don't have a local SIM card anymore. And like, there's a few other examples. And I was sort of calling this like the, the sort of like the government operating system. Like in the 1970s, everything that you, that I just said would have been gotten in part from some government. The government was, was involved in utilities. The government was involved in you know, housing and taxes and things like that. All this stuff has been abstracted completely away. And all of those companies are now actually big U.S. companies operating on a global level. I don't go to banks. I don't take any currency out anymore. You know, all that stuff is done through Uber and, and, and Uber Eats. And so that, to me, I think is the sort of very subtle biggest disruptor of big companies. And the answer might be, it's just become smaller versions of those companies in other markets, not the United States. And I'm not like waving the American flag here. I just think that the accessibility of U.S.-based services on a global basis that displaces a lot of local companies is highly, highly disruptive. So I don't know. That was just was an interesting epiphany that I had. I was trying to think of the things that I don't get. I mean, healthcare is still a complete and utter mess. Right? I don't. I have to get healthcare locally in Australia. Um, I'm sure if I was doing, well, schooling, I don't know, depending on how I wanted to school my children, I might be able to get that all through um, something online now. I don't know. So I think that the sort of, if you're going to look at the companies that are essentially competing with that, with the life stack blob as independence, uh, I would be, I would be Be scared. scared. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to think of like a good, like a good example. Like, I mean. I don't know, something like a regional telephone company, like I don't know if Southern Bell exists anymore, but something like that, right? I mean, that would I'd be scary like, to be one of those companies. Since, since you've seen a lot of companies, run companies, et cetera, we were emailing a bit about some members of your family and the very interesting different things they do and this notion of leadership. We'd love to hear your thoughts on different styles of leadership and maybe any lessons that you've gleaned watching and watching a lot of leaders and, and being one yourself. So there's four members of my family, my sister and I, my mother, my father, and my father is an opera and symphony conductor, so conducted here at New York City Opera and all over the world. My sister is, runs an English department at Los Altos High School and has taught many classes. And you know, my mother is, is a mother, so she's managed the family and, and everything. And I've, I've built startups. And we just think it's really interesting to compare the fact that we all have been in various kind of management and leadership positions and, and what our styles are. I think there is an interesting dynamic emerging between a generation that has grown up experiencing and hearing a lot about sort of network organization, networked organizations, so non-hierarchical organizations, because a lot of their experience are in smaller companies. And smaller companies can, can survive with networked organizations. But I think at some point in time when they grow bigger, they have to become hierarchical to run themselves. That's just sort of the nature of the beast. So I see that sort of an, as an interesting challenge as a leader to guide generation of people that have started in a non-hierarchical world into necessary hierarchy at scale or to work with them. Like I think one of the most interesting transitions I've had is I very much viewed people leaving my companies that when they work for me as like I had a personal failure. I took it very hard when anybody joined the company and left two years later, three years later, four years later. And there's a great guy named Ben Casanocha who wrote a book about essentially with, with Reed Hoffman. He was Reed's chief of staff at LinkedIn for a long time. He wrote a book about essentially like a new generation of people that go through tours of duty. So taking a look at a leader, not as trying to retain all of your staff for as long as possible, but to help them go through a journey for a couple of years to achieve something personal for them, which they then will work really hard to thank you for in return. And at that point in time, either being very comfortable with them leaving and becoming an alumni of the business and thinking of things as an extended network or 
talking about a new tour of duty and what that could be. I completely refused that notion five years ago, and now I've completely and utterly embraced it. And the, the last person I hired at Influence.co, we set up everything about his involvement that way, about what his title was, what his focus was, his equity compensation, his goal structure, and had a very blatant conversation that said, in two years, I either want you to be negotiating with me again about your, the next a, thing, the a next job, tour, a job yeah. here, or walking out the door and going on to your next thing, having leveled up here. That's a big, big change I think that's happening in the workforce. That you know, I know that I myself was resistive to, but once you embrace it, it just makes it a heck of a lot easier to build organizations. The notion of content has become so ubiquitous, and we've talked a ton about it today. You've worked in this world and thought a lot about it. Are there any? generalizable lessons on what makes for good content or maybe asked better advice that you would give to people who are creating content or hope to acquire like in a platform style, those that create content, like what are the markers of the most successful new content strategies that you've seen? I would say the content creators that are the most successful so one of our good friends is a woman named Lauren Everts, whose sort of handle is the Skinny Confidentials. She's a lifestyle blogger. She talks about this a lot with me, and she's very successful at what, she's done, what she does. She has podcasts and Facebook group and things like that. I think the most successful content creators are those that are thinking about engagement and community behind the content they're creating, and they're, they're thinking about content that, that facilitates that. I think because content marketing became a channel that was so uh, so utterly adopted by everybody, the just general proliferation of content that's sort of soulless and has nothing behind it, it's just there to become searchable, to answer a quick question, has devalued content massively. And so I think the people that are most successful are, are thinking about content that gets people to lean in and engages and have and allows people to have conversations around it. And that might be, it's anything from a picture on Instagram that shares a bit of information that gets people to ask questions to longer form content that is then backed up by a discussion in a community related to it. I think you're going to see people being a lot less successful with just giant content engines that have good keyword density and the right H1 headers and going and doing a ton of backlinking. And we've even seen this in the influencer space. You know, there are 40 different articles about how to write a good campaign brief for influencers. But what we focus on is actually allowing influencers to put up a, a piece of content that they created with a brand and then tell the story of how they got that content, what the techniques were, the choices they didn't make, publish all the information around that content. Uh, we call those showcases, and that's been an incredibly successful part of our site. So it's um, maybe like content with soul or content with community is is the future, not just raw, raw volume. I think it's not playing anymore. There's a, just because it's fresh on my mind, because the most recent example happened, at, I think just yesterday, there's a great example in our business in the, well, not in the asset management business, but in the financial advisory business, a firm called Ritholtz Wealth Management, which has effectively adopted this strategy of like influencer roll-up. So they have, it's it's a financial advisory business as a disclaimer, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with the people that run it and think very highly of them. They have sort of one by one, effectively through Twitter, identified, built relationships with, and, and ultimately hired the sort of biggest influencers in different parts of the financial Twitter universe stack. <laughs> I'm curious what you think about the viability of that strategy, more generally speaking, and maybe maybe any pros and cons, just trying to kind of wrap this all back to, to this finance world. We've really focused on media and content. I, I love that strategy. It's, it's sort of like a per, private GLG, right? I love that strategy because I think 
what it allows them to do at some point in time is to separate what's publicly available from what's privately available. And I think you know, maybe another way to answer your last question in this one at the same time is that's the future of content. It's front of house, back of house. You're just going to start to see people not give it all away for free anymore. And one of the things I think I, that I see influencers doing and maybe this company is doing this too is they are starting to look at different channels as essentially part of the funnel. And uh, there wasn't really anything at the bottom of the funnel before. I'm not trying to be glib about it. I think there really wasn't. What was at the bottom of the funnel is just do more stuff at the top of the funnel, right? It was like that was the loop. <laughs> but now that the bottom of the funnel, now there's a generation of people that are growing up paying $2.99 a month for the bottom of the funnel. There's like that's important. Like that's money at the end of that rainbow. And so all of the other channels are now essentially going to be used to sort of like drip stuff down in. So I think it's genius to go and get people that are producing probably really great public opinion on finance stuff and continue to support that, maybe because they're part of a larger infrastructure that can fund that. But inevitably, what will emerge is that some of the information gets, some of the good information gets, gets saved, held back. Gets held back, right? And this is like, I mean, everything, like whether it's, you know, whether it's the journal or whether it's the, you know, the information or, I mean, every single you know, source that I, you know, I pay for strategery at the end of the day, that's the future, right? It's, there are two ways to curate good content. One is have an editor and one is charge for it. Right. I mean, it's like, that's it. yeah. And so in the same way that, you know, we just paid 99 cents for an app or for a song on iTunes for 10 years, we're paying 99 cents or, or a ringtone. I mean, content subscriptions is just a new ringtone business. There was a whole generation of people that paid, you know, 60 bucks on their phone bills to have 16 different ringtones and ringbacks and things like that. We know that people will pay $1.99 to $3.99 a month ad infinitum for things that they like as long as they're associated with something that they like. We're just moving that from pithy media and games, sorry, pithy, pithy entertainment and games into content. And frankly, it works for me because I'd rather give my money to someone that's, that's really spending a lot of time doing the work, like the journal or something like that, than spending hours and hours and hours hunting around. So just a couple of fun closing questions to what's been a uh, fascinating, edifying conversation for me, for sure. The first is this idea of restaurants. So I think you've, you've started or owned two restaurants, yeah. which are notoriously either the best in very small cases or in most cases, the absolute worst <laughs> businesses in the world. It's, it's so incongruous with everything else we've talked about. So I'd love to hear about that experience. I mentioned I started my first venture back business when I was 22. We sold it when I was 24. So I had that success at that age. Anybody that would have that kind of an experience at that age would go find something to, that sounded very sexy as a contrast to building tech companies. And for me, those are restaurants and bars. The other thing I think that's really been an interesting kind of arc in my life is that when you're, when you're young and you have success, you tend not to be honest with yourself about the silos in which that success is repeatable. And so what you, I see this pattern with a lot of my friends. You have some success, you make some money, and so you start just getting fascinated in a lot of other things. I'd, I'd love to be involved in a restaurant. I'd love to be involved in a fashion house. You know, maybe I'll go, you know, build a gaming business, whatever the case may be. And you kind of go through this arc where you just think that your success in one industry is translatable into another. It's a very sort of naive thing to do. But what happens is you anchor yourself with a lot of investments in things. And then they tend to not go as well as you think because either you got lucky or your success doesn't translate very well. But you don't have really enough time because you got a lot of projects and they're all kind of needy birds to focus on them. And you continue to tell yourself, oh, no, if I just focus on that, I would be successful at it. But for the time being, I'm just going to give it more money. And so you give it more money to buy yourself more time because you still believe that you can actually jump in on that and be successful at it. And so you end up putting a whole bunch of money on the table and then you have the gambler's dilemma 
of walking away versus continuing to double down on it. And this is exactly what happened in the restaurant space. And it was a really important journey for me because it was probably the most humbling experience that I had, which is a necessary part of my overall business experience. Because what it really taught me is nothing new. The restaurant industry is hard, but it really taught me is that I mean, I built my first software company when I was 14 years old. I've been thinking about how to be good at building software companies for 10 years by the time I sold that. And I don't know anything about restaurants. And it's kind of like an obvious lesson, but I think it's just this very natural path I see with a lot of people that become successful is they just think success is laterally translatable. And, and I really don't think that's true. I think there are very few people that can just jump from one thing to another and have the same outcomes. What about motocross? <laughs> well, fortunately, I was never trying to be very, very good. I also have this other thing where like, I really, really believe that it's important every year to find a new physical skill. Huh. I mean, it could be knitting, r- learning how to ride a motorcycle, you name it, becoming a professional rower, throwing a Frisbee 100 yards, whatever the case may be. I think in our digital age, we consume a, mount, a massive amount of new information about new topics all the time. And so we think that we are learning and evolving, but we're doing very little learning and evolving tactically. And so I got on this kick of trying to just do a lot of new f- physical things that would require mastery. And my friend one day, said, hey, I'm bored. Let's In Colorado, there's a bunch of motocross tracks. Said, just, hey, come out with me one day. And I thought of motocross as kind of a pretty rednecky hick thing to do. Got out there, threw me on the bike, essentially showed me how to ride it for five minutes, and then just left. And I literally bought the bike from him the next day and just started this journey of getting deeply into motocross and doing the big, big jumps and doing the hair scrambles with 150 riders of all levels and battling it out with people on the course and uh, ending up in the hospital a bunch of different times. And it's just an incredible addiction. But I think what I really love about it is that there's, there's something different, intrinsically different about feeling like I went out to learn how to ride a motorcycle and now I'm extremely competent at it that I probably don't get from anything digital. You know, I can read whatever. I can do Rosetta Stone and learn French, you know, for a while. But I don't know. Maybe it's just a much more kind of like caveman-y, visceral thing to be able to to physically do something. But I think that's the lost art. I I think if everybody tried to learn one new physical thing a year, they would live a much happier life. So my closing question for everybody, every guest, is to ask what the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you is. I think probably the kindest and most impactful thing that happened to me was in the first business we built, Service Metrics, that was the one I moved to Colorado for, the guy that was running the business, his name was Tom Higley. The kindest thing he did was let me be involved. There wasn't a part of the business that he just sort of cordoned off and said, I don't want you in the board meetings. I don't want you to talk in the marketing. I don't want you to do anything. He just let me, gave me some room to run. And, and, and I put a hell of a lot of work into that business to try to not make that a bad decision on his part. And I think that was like probably the kindest thing he could have done because he changed my opinion about what I wanted what I wanted to be from someone that just sort of told technology stories to someone that built business stories. And that I think that access was everything. So um, yeah, that's what comes to mind. Well, thank you so much for all this time. It is conversations like this one that are the reason I keep doing this. So it's been incredibly interesting and, and fun and I hope we can do it again. Yeah, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It's great. Hey everyone, Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.